0: The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the Best of Fight Back
1: with Jane Brown.
0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It was a day that forever changed our city, April 23rd, 2018, the day of the horrific van attack that killed 10 people and injured 16. On Tuesday, Fight Back commemorated the one-year anniversary by speaking with a friend of one of the victims. Manjula Wickramaratni was a close family friend of the 45-year-old single mom Ranuka Amarasinga, who lost her life in the van attack on Young Street. Manjula shared how she and Renuka's family are coping one year later.
2: It is a very sad memory when I think about it. I still see, um, we just had a kind of a memorial for her in the temple, and I still see her smile, and then, um, yeah, it's very painful to think about it.
0: Tell us about Renuka's son. He's actually in a good care with the um, friend that he um he
2: has been taken care of from the beginning the day that it happened so he's in the same house but i as far as i know um there's a uh, his dad is involved in with him now so he's kind of happy to see his dad back in his life and uh they're working on the custody and then you know that that's in the process right now with the court
0: what is done for a, ch- a child of seven who loses a parent in a traumatic experience like that with no warning, um, no understanding, really, of how something like that could happen?
2: Um, he's actually the child that I saw when Renka was with him. And, you know, they came a the couple of times to my house, and then they have been to other my my uh, friends' houses, too. He was very placed and careful. So after the incident that happened, it took him quite a while to process that, and then I could see that, I did see actually, he was very, he became very matured, very kind of silent from the couple of months. Yes. I'm talking about last April to up to, I would say, up to summer, he was kind of, he became quieter, and then I can see that he's processing, but he, in his talks or anything, he never mentioned. He mentioned at, at least, I think, I think a couple of times that he said, oh, my mom helped me to do this, and then he, it came back and forth in his mind. Yes. But now I can see again, he's happy to see his dad, and I can see the change from where I saw him, you know, in he was in April, May, June, July, and now I see him kind of faithful again, you know, he's playing with my son sometimes, they come to my house, and I take him to Sunday school, so I see the change now, you know, I'm so glad that he he kind of, you know, dad came back to um, pick him and then, you know, talk to him, and then kind of you know, integrating his, his life so
0: Manjula remind us because it has been a year uh, yeah. about your friend Ranuka what she was like what kind of person she was how she's being remembered
2: She's such a I'm not saying because you know she's my friend she's a, such a lovely person that um, she she was living by herself with her son but she was everywhere like if you need her if you even though if you don't need it she'll be always with involved with the community especially with the temple She's always there to support people. She's always smiling. And then it's, you know, how living with the thing, you know, in in a single, like, single mom's role, it's it's hard to manage sometimes, but she manages everything. She did, she put every possible effort to, um, you know, make sure her son goes to everywhere. Like, he was participating in many, many extracurricular activities. And I don't know how she managed the money, but she did very well. Like, she's extremely, extremely prepared person i would say because i think you know when you live by yourself you always have the fear what if yes. something happened to me so she had that in the back of her mind when she was talking to me she always like she makes sure when she gets sick she goes to hospital and she she doesn't delay anything she's um always on top of everything and such a lovely person you know understand such an empathetic person understands people's feeling very sensitive person like Knowing her, like, I I know her, like, when she talked to people, and she's such a sensitive person, and always think about other people, think about family members, think about your parents, like, she treated my parents as if they were her parents, so I know how she is from, that's why I couldn't believe, like, when she was gone, I'm like, oh, my, like, Yes. that this had happened to her. So,
0: Manjula, how are how is the community and the temple that you went to, that you still go to and that uh, Renuka went to, how are people adjusting, how have they dealt with the trauma and the
3: loss?
2: People still remember, people make sure that, you know, everything we could possibly do now to their family and the memory of Renuka will continue like many, many years from now. So, People are very supportive. Even like you know, family, like friends that she had. She had many, many friends. None of them were her family. Like that's 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 amazing. Like when I see how many connections that, how many memories that she has left behind. Yes. Even the temple monk was saying that she. He was surprised too. He was shocked to see how much impact that she has created um, in the community. And then you know, having such a lovely memory of one person, one single person that she created many memories in her life. So.
0: That was my conversation on Tuesday with Manjula Wickramaratne, close family friend to Renuka Amarasinga, who died in last year's Young Street van attack. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Eileen Davila, spoke out publicly against cuts made by the Doug Ford PCs to Toronto's public health budget. Board of Health Chair Joe Cressy claims Toronto Public Health's budget is being slashed by a billion dollars over 10 years. Both say important and necessary public health programs will suffer as a result of the cuts. Both Provincial Ministers Christine Elliott and Lisa McLeod use social media to share their stance on the topic in defense of their spending on public health. Joe Mehevick, former chair of the Toronto Board of Health, gave us his take on these cuts to health care.
4: I was the uh, city councilor chair of the Board of Health during the SARS era and out of that whole almost massive tragedy where public health really shined, there was a report issued by an eminent who eventually became eminent scientist doctor, Dr. David Naylor, who then became the president of the University of Toronto. And the report basically identified that we need to strengthen our public health systems in the province of Ontario, that that was absolutely essential to a good, healthy city. And so the province started to increase funding after that point to facilitate that happening. And that's what's at risk here. What we're essentially doing is weakening public health. And what I like to say is, you know what? With public health, you either pay me now, small dollars, or you pay me later in big dollars.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: What's the value of a a vaccination? Well, the value of a vaccination is is that tomorrow, your children, when they become teenagers, do not get the various diseases that come when they're not well-protected. So those are the kinds of things that are at risk uh, right now. The province, at the end of the day, is making these cuts. It's 102 or so million dollars that they are cutting from the public health budget. So the city is faced with one of two alternatives to forward the cuts to public health and make them cut programs, all the programs that uh, Councillor Cressy uh, mentioned. That's option number one. Option number two... It can do a new property tax uh, increase or find money from other programs that will then get cut um, in the city's budget.
1: Oh, I see. I
4: suppose we could act as the savior, uh, but then really, if the province's concern is the taxpayer, then why are they really downloading a cost onto the city? What they're essentially doing is going from the previous cost-sharing method which was the province puts in 75 cents Mm -hmm. and the city puts in 25 cents on the dollar. That's the ratio. And they want to change it to a 50-50 model, which was the model that existed before SARS. And that was the model that was deemed to be too cheap on the provincial side, which was then tempting to cities to cut public health programming. And that's what the province at that time, post-SARS, did not want to have happen. How do
0: the taxpayers of Toronto, who are also the taxpayers of Ontario, how do they feel confident, how do we feel confident, knowing that the money is being used properly for Toronto public health programs?
4: Well, there are many, many eyes that are that watch the public health budget. We have a, a City Hall politically driven audit committee. There are internal auditors, the Ministry of Health, which gives us that uh, $0.75. They also have an annual uh, review of our programs to make sure that they are up to speed and that they are being managed effectively. There are many, many eyes watching public health dollars. And I'll tell you, all the reviews that I've seen in my years, and uh, I've been chair on and off for over 20 years, um, have come back with very positive results. In fact, they've come back with results saying, you need to invest more in this, not less in this.
0: How healthy is the Toronto public?
4: Well, there, there are always areas of improvement. If you look at the death rate, it continues to climb. And it's all these, well probably one, one of the biggest interventions was the no smoking bylaw. So when I was a kid, we had a smoking rate of 50%. When we introduced the no smoking in restaurants bylaw, we were at 25%, and now we're at 10%. Well, guess what? That is bumping up the quality of life and the life expectancy of Torontonians, Ontarians, and Canadians across the board. That was a very smart, low-cost intervention very early on that uh, allowed us to be healthier people. We do have one of the longest uh, lifespans uh, on the planet, and I think it's because of the, well, one of the reasons, of course, is the public health programs uh, that we have in place. We don't want to risk that.
0: That was my conversation with former chair of the Toronto Board of Health, Joe Mahavik. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. On Wednesday, we learned the butterfly method is being embraced for Toronto's long-term care nursing homes, a program endorsed by CARP, A New Vision of Aging. The model is among a number of emotion-based care programs, which has seen success in other countries as well as in other parts of Canada. Filling in for Libby, I was joined in studio by CARP's Chief Public Policy Officer, Laura Tamblin Watts, to explain how this emotion focused way of caregiving works.
5: We know that long-term care has to change. What's happening right now is really meeting nobody's needs. It's not economical. It's not good for the system. And most importantly, it's not good for the residents whose home they are. And we have been monitoring very closely the different ways that we can look at transforming long-term care. And as part of our national policy platform, our national seniors platform, we call the Faces of Canadian Seniors, one of our key asks under the exceptional healthcare pillar, was to implement emotion-based care. And what does it mean? It means you're putting the person first. It means getting rid of clinical-looking uh, environments, getting rid of the scrubs, getting rid of the white walls or the the green walls, and you know the ones I'm talking yes. about, and replacing it with warm, home-like environments. It means taking time to talk to people. It means getting rid of the institutionalization and bringing in the personalization. Well, this
0: seems to be the evolution of society anyway, getting getting away from that, having more hands-on, having more real connection with people. I mean, we all know how much that benefits us, regardless of our age, regardless of our education, our profession. We all want to feel connected to other people. It makes us feel good.
5: It's the most important thing. And when we're looking at who's living in long-term care, who are the residents? Remember, these are their homes. The homes of these people tend to be people with significant cognitive impairment and a lot of physical fragility. And that's because these days you can't get into long-term care home, usually until you have these needs. So emotion-based care, transformative care, particularly focuses on persons with dementia or cognitive impairment. And what we see is remarkable. It reduces anxiety of the residents. It increases the well-being and the well-being is measured not just by their physical well-being, but their emotional well-being. They're not lashing out the way that they would if they were in a scared or anxious base uh, state. And the resident's are supported by people who have the time to take care. We know that there are very, very, very few guidelines for how long-term care staffing is done. Most people wouldn't realize there's only a requirement for one RN, no matter how many residents there are. And we've been advocating as well for more time spent with people and less time ticking off checklists. And what we're seeing is, a huge transformation and staff like it more, and are getting treated better themselves. So you you say there's a connection between
0: staff and the residents, um, making the even the color on the walls more warm, uh, how that can make a difference, Maybe bringing in furniture that feels more like home, that kind of thing. But tell us what some of those connections would look like in terms of, of how uh, the residents would be involved with the staff in a different way.
5: So we've taken such a risk aversion approach in Canada that we've taken away so much of what makes people tick. So, you know, no sharp objects, no way of getting your hands dirty, no way of actually engaging in life anymore. There was this sense that risk needed to be withdrawn to such a great degree. And yet, actually, long-term care homes are enormously risky places for other reasons. We know abuse is a real challenge. We know that people are being hit, whether they be staff members or residents. So this idea of trying to avert risk and kind of move to more of a warehousing or medical tick box approach didn't actually succeed in any way. So we're introducing a bit of risk back into the environment. So gardening, cooking, participating in act daily activities of daily living, making sure that people have that sense of personhood. If they're able to um, change their doorways, to make their doorways look like their old doorways, really involving uh, a lot of communication. So talking with older adults and getting them engaged in activities, that has been a huge piece. But Always, always keeping that sense of connection as the most important thing, even above that very medicalized model that we're so used to today. That was CARP's Chief
0: Public Policy Officer, Laura Tamblin watts You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This was a hot topic that had the Fight Back phones ringing. It was revealed that the Ford PCs were likely planning to cut OHIP's emergency travel insurance coverage, impacting those Ontarians who travel outside of Canada. Currently, the Out-of-Country Travelers Program provides up to $400 a day for inpatient services like intensive care, and up to $50 a day for emergency outpatient services and doctor services. The Auditor General flagged the cost of administering the program at $2.8 million a year to process about $9 million in claims payments. OHIP data suggests of the 40,000 Ontarians who travel outside Canada every year and require health services, over 90% by private travel health insurance. If the OHIP travel insurance cut is approved, it will be effective as of October 1st. Public feedback is being accepted until this Tuesday. To get more clarification on this important matter for Zoomers, I spoke with NDP MPP Marit Stiles and the Minister of Health
6: and Long-Term Care, Christine Elliott. It is, uh, has proven to be an ineffective program. Right now it spends, um, it costs about $2.8 million to administer about $9 million in claim payments. So it's about a third of the, the cost of the program is just on administration. But secondly, it doesn't provide the level of coverage that I think people expect that it does. So we've heard from a number of stakeholders, from individuals who have said that people are really being given a false sense of security by the existing program um, because it only covers $400 in costs. And we know that if someone has to be hospitalized in the United States, for example, the costs can be far, far higher. And people aren't expecting that and can be stuck with very high payments. So we believe it's really important to let people know that to encourage people to buy their own travel insurance which can be obtained quite inexpensively and can cover their entire costs, I think that's uh, something that we need to do to be fair to uh, the people of Ontario to let them know that and also it's, it's our responsibility to spend uh, taxpayers' dollars wisely and this program was not a good use of public funds. Does that $2.8 million go elsewhere in the health system? Absolutely, it will, yes. We just announced um, several days ago a, a dental program for low income seniors that will be a $90 million annual program that will help um, seniors on low incomes get access to vital uh, dental care services because we know that the waits can be very long in some of the health care units or community um, health centers. We want to make sure that people don't have to wait a year to get those services and don't need to end up in emergency departments as well. We want to make sure that people can get timely access to to dental care.
0: We'll get Marit Stiles on the line here with us. Marit, so it seems to me that your biggest complaint with the decision to get rid of this out-of-country travellers program is that it just sort of snuck up on us. There did not appear to be uh, any warning of a public consultation or grace period so people could think about it and react thoughtfully.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen repeatedly with this government is um, this pattern um, where they try to ram something through and there really isn't any real opportunity for consultation. I mean, in this case, they're giving folks six days, including a weekend, to provide input. And they're doing this, and this is also important to note, during what we call constituency week. So when the legislature is not sitting uh, when the minister doesn't have to be at Queen's Park and be grilled and ask questions by both the opposition and, uh, and the media. And so it really kind of is, a is interesting timing, I would say. So I think it's very inadequate. Um, but it's in keeping with the pattern we've seen, uh, particularly around, uh, healthcare, where we've seen them, for example, also, uh, just announce pretty major cuts to public health, uh, in this province. Um, and with absolutely no consultation with anyone. You know, there's, there was a report that was done uh, not long ago which, which looked at this program and, and said there are things that we could do to improve it. And I think what the government is doing here is kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, I'm not aware. We are not aware of any significant consultation. And I think Ontarians who travel Outside the country will say they haven't been consulted until now. Um, but certainly, you know, you can improve programs, but to throw everything out the door without actually talking, uh, with the people who are going to be most effective, you know, who are especially, let's, let's face it, you know, uh, folks who, who leave the country routinely, whether for business or, or snowbirds heading south in the winter. Um, and, and I think that the, the fact that they are again doing this kind of at a time when it seems very behind the scenes, very back door is very, uh, concerning
0: Mara, leave us with your final thoughts on this.
7: Well, I would just caution folks to remember that you know people go outside of the country for lots of reasons, and sometimes it's simply people who um, who are going down there for work. Sometimes it's people who have to leave suddenly because of you know for some other reason they have to visit a relative who's ill. You know things like this that come up, and I think we. We as Ontarians deserve to know that our government has our back. And, you know, sometimes when these little things, they, they, they really add up for a lot of people. And I, and I don't think it's only wealthy people who are
0: going on vacation that this will affect. That was NDP MPP Marit Stiles and the Minister of Health and Long-Term Care Christine Elliott, who talked first to Fight Back about this issue. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Older Canadians vote in elections in overwhelming numbers. That's likely a big part of the reason Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau was here at the Zoomerplex on Thursday to participate in a CARP town hall moderated by our own Libby Snymer. While speaking to an audience of CARP members, Morneau offered highlights of the government's efforts to better support Canadians as they retire. After the town hall, Mike Powell, president of the Canadian Federation of Pensioners, and Libby Snymers stopped by to give us their takeaways.
3: It was really good to see him. And the one thing that I'm taking away from it, he seems to be a very good listener. What comes out of all that listening? Well, that, of course, is another question. So we started by going over. He went over what his government has already done for the older demographic. And what came through for me on that is that they've had a few measures like improving the uh, GIS, also increasing in the last budget, we saw the amount of money that you can earn Before your old age security is clawed back, that increased a bit. So that's what they've done so far to help people who are at the lower end of the income scale. And the rest of it seems to be not top of mind. And maybe they'll think about it because basically when I started the town hall, I said, you know what? We're all here because we're living longer. And we have to adjust the way we approach the life cycle, the way we approach age milestones, and the way we fund our longer lives. So they haven't quite got to that part yet, but they seem to be listening. And and he was here even beyond the town hall, which went for a bit over an hour. He was here in meetings with various groups, including Mike. So I think they really are listening. And the one thing that they do understand, our demographic votes. Well, you made it clear during the program this morning that
0: 98% of the 320,000 carp members will go out to vote. It would make sense for Bill Moreno to spend the morning with Carp
3: based, right. based on that alone. And and beyond Carp members, the older demographic votes in overwhelming numbers. Mike, what
0: impressed you about the finance minister's presentation?
1: Well I think he was very open um they've made the federal government has made moves in this budget to address some of the uh inequality in the way pensioners are dealt with in insolvencies um and he seems fairly open to talk about alternatives to solutions um and that's a positive that that we can continue this dialogue uh, we appreciate that uh, the the ministry did put items in the budget that made small steps forward, not nearly enough, didn't really address the real problem of pension security, but did make changes. And this is the first time in a long time any government has made substantial changes to the insolvency legislation.
3: Well, the, the issue, of course, is when you have unfunded pension liabilities uh, and uh, pensioners, they're just, they're unsecured creditors. So what CARP and others have wanted, they want pensioners to go to the top of the line. So what I got from that, that that wasn't a priority. He made one interesting point, I thought. He said that any changes can can reduce the number of companies offering those benefits further so they balance that. I I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of that before. Uh, but again, you know, my impression was that, you know, those aren't the priorities, that their priorities are lower income seniors and they're not that worried about the rest. Mike
0: Powell, president of the Canadian Federation of Pensioners. What are you looking forward to? I mean, if you say your priority item to pushing the Trudeau liberals on, uh, and for that matter, the opposition conservatives and the NDPs as well.
1: Right. We, 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 we meet with all parties uh, looking for policy direction going into this uh, next election. And uh, we're, we're looking for someone to step up and address proper pension protection. Pensioners should get what the commitment was made to them, uh, regardless of the status of the company. And whichever party kind of deals with that, uh, we will be letting our members know.
3: And Libby Snymer? Well, I think it was great that he was here. I mean, basically for us, it's a chance to get our dibs in before they formulate their platform for the next election. It will be full of goodies, I'm sure. And again, uh, one of the things that I'm hoping that we get from government at all levels is a shift from saying we're, we're going to help our most vulnerable seniors, which is very important to we have to help shift the whole life cycle to accommodate these wonderful longer lives. That's right. We have to pay for our long lives. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That
0: was our own Fight Back host, Libby Snymer and the president of the Canadian Federation of Pensioners, Mike Powell. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Joan in North York called to say she's already made up her mind and knows who won't be getting her vote in the upcoming federal election.
2: First of all, I'd like to know what he's doing with this carbon tax. Is he just putting it in general funds? He's got us so in debt. How uh, children and grandchildren, going to survive what the debt he's put us in. And what's he showed for it? I'm not really sure. So, if you want to know if I'd vote for him? No way. I didn't uh, vote for his father, and I'm not voting for him.
0: A sharp contrast to Joan is Sharon in
6: Oakville, who explains
0: what matters to her most.
6: At this point, I absolutely am a liberal. I will vote for the liberals. I am for climate change. I'm sorry, there's just so much in the conservative government that they are not doing properly. I could never vote for them.
0: Wendell in Hamilton phone to share his own personal experience on how his family is dealing with long-term care.
4: I still think one of the best places that we can have our elderly people stay is in the homes of their children. And I don't think the government does enough to facilitate that. My mother-in-law is 89 years old. When we thought, well, the best place for her to stay would be to stay with us works out great she loved it we love it so we get a tax credit because my mother-in-law stays with us but it it equates to cash in pocket about a hundred dollars a month i think that helps offload the situation in the nursing homes and i think the government should do more to help the elderly stay in home
0: and now fight back's knockout call of the week Great calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who has concerns about the future of long-term care.
4: Long-term care is not a choice for many people, and nor is acute care. Uh, I just see them as part of a uh, of a continuum of health as we uh, are born and as we age. And uh, as we know, Medicare is is funded as long-term care ought to be, as well. I'm, I'm very concerned about the direction the current government is going, uh, which is leaning more and more towards privatization. And uh, that's a real concern for me. I think we should be going the other direction and looking at the not for profit model.
0: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Ecock, and Kelly Robotham.